Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Australia podcast, where we will be bringing together the best technical leaders from across the industry to discuss passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm Lewis Burks, and I connect businesses with talented contractors in the project services market, and I will be your host today. Welcome to the latest episode of the Evolution Exchange Australia podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from across Australia to discuss industry passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm Lewis Burks, and my role here at Evolution, as well as your host for today's podcast, is to connect businesses with talented contractors in the project services market. Today, I'm joined by Kate Morris, Brad Kirby, and Mark Sherman to discuss a wide-ranging topics that affects all of us, irrelevant of industry, which is team culture as an essential ingredient of successful project delivery. So before we dive into today's topic, I want to give us everybody a chance to introduce themselves. So do you want to kick us off, Kate, with an introduction to yourself? Thanks, Lewis. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Kate Morris. I am working with MasterCard at the moment. Uh, I'm a director in strategic program management uh, on the Payment Gateway Services team. So that's pretty cool and exciting to work in. Um, I have n- more than more than the years of experience I'd care to uh, call out here in terms of working as a project professional and mostly in financial services, banking and technology. Lovely. Thank you, Kate, and great to have you with us today. Uh, Brad, I'll pass to you next. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So Brad Kirby, I am the business analysis chapter owner at QBE Insurance. Uh, We've got a team of about 70 or so uh, business analysts uh, working after, you know, looking after all the different uh, transformation initiatives happening around the region. Um, As far as years of experience, I kind of also don't want to get into that too much. So thanks, Kate, for letting in. Um, But look, uh, probably seven years in this role. uh, And I think I've spent over half my life in the insurance industry. So that's a scary thought. So there you go. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much, Brad. I was joking to somebody earlier today that telling them the number of years I was in uh, in this particular industry really put an age on me. So uh, I'm glad that everybody else feels the same way. <laughs> and last but not least, Mark, I'll throw it to you. Uh, thanks, Lewis. Uh, yeah, I'm Mark Sherman, and I manage the BA or business analysis capability for strategic program delivery within strategy and architecture uh, for IAG uh, Australia. And uh, I'm picking up a common theme here about talking about how long we've been in the game, but uh, similar to Brad, certainly over half my life um, in program delivery. Um, so yeah, very look, very much looking forward to the, the chat today. Yeah, great. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. I think uh, the the years of experience leading teams um, from all involved should should add to a really valuable one. So I'll I'll kick us off and dive into some of the questions. So the questions you guys shared with uh, the group last week, and I'm going to kick off uh, the first question with with Brad's question that he wanted to pose uh, to the group as part of this conversation and part of this topic. So Brad's question was, in his organisation, and he suspects other organisations too, here's a matrix structure where the people management is won via one particular leader, but the day-to-day work, the team, the task allocation and prioritisation is driven from other staff within a cross-functional team and squad structure. As a people leader, how do you influence culture when over 90% of the time your staff are working with another team that you have no direct control or influence over? And so the context for this that Brad's provided, he said, for example, he manages the BA chapter, so all the BAs ultimately reported to him, but each of them is assigned to a different squad and a different scrum master and product owner for the specific team and culture on a day-to-day basis. So, Mark, I'll throw it to you. How do you approach this in terms of kind of building team culture? Well, look, I'm 
I'm pretty lucky in IAG. Culture is a very strong pillar upon which we really build our our delivery world. Um, I'm actually part of the the culture amplifiers within IAG and, and Tech and Ops. Um, so culture is is a theme that runs through everything that we do, um, how we work, how we run our teams, how we build our teams. Um, we work in a very contingent. Uh, based delivery model at the moment as well. Um, so it certainly comes into play when we are resourcing our project teams. It's a pillar upon which we actually source our, our resources. Um, we work really closely uh, and live and breathe culture as part of all of our catch-ups, our, our check-ins, our one-on-ones. Um, and as far as ensuring that we embed culture in the teams that are focused on delivery. Uh, we make sure that it's part of the ceremonies that we're involved in. Uh, we try and create a psychologically safe environment. Um, and that's very much driven top down as well. So as leaders, we've got no issue stepping in and saying, oops, we messed up. Um, if we take ownership of some of those situations and openly talk about them and talk about them from the perspective of every mistake is an opportunity it's not necessarily a step backwards it's the opportunity to step forward into that mistake own it and learn from it uh it's creating that environment um and embedding it just in our day-to-day yeah i like that i think uh when you embed something when you embed something to the point where it becomes normal <laughs> or, or kind of a part of what you do and what you carry every day, then it's uh, it's a lot easier to kind of make the, make those changes and build those elements. But uh, I, I, nobody wants to hear my response to this. So, Kate, <laughs> I'll, pass, I'll pass to you to get your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think it's it's part of the the art part of project management when, you, when you're dealing with so many people because it, you have to have that Jedi mind trick of how do you, uh, you know, impose your will <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to do with, with team members that don't necessarily report to you? And I think that's that's always, a, you know, we've got really great culture within the wider team that I'm part of in with MasterCard that looks after the program. Um, and when I use the word program, and this is for the project professionals, it's we have a project, a program and a portfolio. It, it's a whole division of MasterCard, <laughs> but they all call them programs. So when I when I talk about being a, a in strategic program management, I'm looking after the portfolio, right? So I've got to deal with a tremendous amount of people, all of different hierarchical pay grades, stuff like that, to to be able to get their culture going. Um, and I always think when I come in, how do I how do I want to be treated? What's the culture I want to impart? And if I have the opportunity to lead a group of people that have to work in that environment as well. I want them to be thinking about how they impart what they need, what what culture they want to um, have emulated throughout. So just making sure that uh, people can understand um, how you run, that you have that open communication and transparency. For me, uh, I you know would want to share that with people, how I would like to have that communication. My team can then permeate that through other teams that they're working with of, about communication about that open feedback loop, making sure that you're being, you're open to that challenge, that uh, the feedback, it's not criticism, it's feedback that you can have. Um, 
that I know that some people have um, struggled with that kind of openness. And so being able to have a culture where you can actually talk to people, um, I think definitely on a project um, environment, having that ability to feel comfortable to speak up, especially when it's in a hierarchical situation, making sure that you can um, challenge your peers and not feel bad about it and not be attacked for doing it. That's a culture thing to me, definitely be able to to do that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that's for me. Lovely. Thank you, Kate. Brad, I can see I can see you nodding along as uh, as both of the guys spoke, which means there's clearly a, a large element of of what they both said that you uh, you agree with. But as the man that posed this question, I'm very keen to hear your your take on this. Yeah, no, I'm I'm nodding along because they've taken all of the good points that I was going to raise. <laughs> I'm sitting, here, I'm listening. Okay, yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to say that. So anyway, um, now even just listening to Mark at the start of it, and I think it's it's interesting, um, hearing how common the sort of cultural challenges are across the organizations, regardless of industry, regardless of the team we're responsible for. Um, yeah, I could have said half of what was said here because I think we're, we're facing the similar things. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't want to sort of just reiterate what was said. I was trying to think about what, what are the gaps or what are the other parts I want to talk to. So um, I, I loved Mark's comment around uh, sort of living and breathing the sort of cultural. Again, we're in a similar place at QVD. We've got, a, we call it our DNA, but it's the same stuff. These are the sort of cultural statements. So you're right. It has to be upstream as far as recruitment. When you're identifying candidates you want to bring in, you've got to have questions and looking for the type of personality types and the type of people you've got that are going to represent the culture you're bringing into the company. Um, it goes to us. I mean, we, we've got a really robust onboarding process and sort of not, not quite scripted, but a very structured onboarding process. And I probably spend more time talking about culture and bringing people into the teams. So before they even get assigned out of that sort of home base concept into a project team, we're actually sitting there and very clearly saying, not only is this the sort of organizational cultural statements that everyone's got, which seem pretty high level, but I then break it down to a really low level at a role base and specifically say, okay, as a BA, how that one comes to life is it looks like this. And I go through each and every one of them. And by doing that, it turns it from being a high level conceptual thing about teamwork, but now I'm able to articulate, this is what it could looks like um, in this particular role as I'm starting you on day one. You'll have that by 11 o'clock on your first morning, you've had that conversation with someone in our team. So I think that stuff's really important when you're introducing people to the team. Living and breathing it, as Mark pointed out, I think, and Kate probably said the same thing, um, I think is critical. The other one that I might call out that I don't think I heard mentioned is that the way, because of the matrix structure that I alluded to in the question, we have this concept of a home base. So by having that home base and then allocating people out to a piece of work and having those regular check-ins as you know the one-on-ones and whatnot um one of the things i really like is that it breaks that hierarchical kind we talked about psychological safety came up i think everyone's answers it breaks the hierarchy up in the sense that you're having a one-on-one with me but i'm not bound to the same priorities and objectives and challenges that that delivery team is because we all know when delivery sort of gets tough everyone just wants to push and get over the line Having somebody that you can have a one-on-one with and have some conversations with on the outside allows us as people leaders to look for those red flags, to look for the, the maybe the the, the you know the the, the, you know, the warning signs about bad culture or things that need to be addressed. But they've got someone to talk them to. If, if you're you know you come in as a team member and you're reporting into your project manager, it's very difficult to feel psychologically safe. You might say all the right things, but you know you, you kind of have to go through the same people that might be sometimes the source of the cultural you know issues as the person you need to escalate them to. It makes it really difficult to have an honest conversation. So by having that concept of a home base allows people to have someone that cares about them at a human level, 
to have a you know have a really strong interest in the cultural side of things that I can sort of talk about the culture that I want to see, have them go off, and then there were an escalation point where if they don't feel they're getting the results, we've got other avenues to sort of go above to address some of these things as well. So. Apart from, yeah, leading by example, living and breathing, I think all of that stuff, I think, you know, we can all agree on. But yeah, some of the things that we've also tried to do is really just have that concept of a home base. So it's somebody that really cares about the human and the culture who isn't directly accountable for that delivery gives us, and I'm not sure, Mark, in your structure, if you're sort of similarly set up, but yeah, it gives us that ability to care a little bit more about the people and the culture. And while delivery is critical, um, that's not our first focus when we start having uh, conversations with people. Yeah, look, I, I, th- I think that's a really good point, and I, th- and I think when you when you talk about leading by example, and this came up with all three of you in prior conversations I've had, and I've just been fortunate enough to to kind of go through the full um, seven habits of highly effective people training um, with with the team here, and it's all about kind of you carry your own weather, and you know I think as a leader, your worst day is what is accepted sometimes by the team. Um, and you, you know your your worst day is what the standard of acceptable looks like. And anything, any day you drop below that, then people may look for an opportunity, um, you know, to to kind of slip themselves as well. So you, you hold a you hold a lot of responsibility to get that right as a leader. So um, I, th- I think it's a I think it's a, a good point to have made, and I think it's important that that's something that's obviously you know conscious for 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 the whole group here as well, which is great. Um. I'll kind of I'll slide into Mark's question now because it just continues to build upon this. Um, so, Mark, your question was: How have other people tackled the challenges of embedding culture into those who may not see themselves as much of a part of the business and are just there to do a job? So, again, the context for this is: you know, all three of you work in businesses where there is a mix of permanent and contract staff. Um, you know, sometimes as well consultant staff and third-party vendors. So you've got, um, you know, project land, as uh, as it's referred to, where you've got contingent heavy contractors, consultants, and it brings challenges around, you know, people being 100% focused on delivery with little or no time for commitment to building that culture. And it's not important to them to go through those supporting activities as well as bringing that, you know, array of maybe quite a wide cultural experience to the table as well. So some positive, some maybe not so positive. Um, so yeah, how do you tackle the challenges of embedding that when you've got that kind of mix of that mix of cultures, that mix of reasons for being there as well, um, and you're trying to build something? So, Kate, I'll uh, I'll go to you first on this one. Yeah, and it's an interesting one because yeah, the at the end of the day, we all want to get paid. Um, you want to do a good job. You're not there to sabotage anyone and just get it done. So, um, having people that you know maybe don't see the the other things that are about inclusiveness and doing things to, to be part of the bigger team um, that might not be the um, milestone deliverable in a project. Um, you know, you also, it also, you, you kind of get a bit stuck sometimes where you want to include them, but depending on the company policy, you're not allowed to invite them to something, right? Those kind of things always bug me. Um, and that's in every company. <laughs> um, because I, I look at the team and go, that's my team. I don't see the difference. I want to be able to um, enjoy the wins and the successes um, with with the whole team and not have to worry about, can I do this with that person because they're, they're a contractor? Those kind of things bug me when it comes to the culture. Um, but in terms of how do you get them to to just buy in and do it, I think there's there's certain things you can 
you'll never get anybody to do and you, you even get people who don't like to buy into stuff and they're full-timers it's not just contractors that have that as well right they're just there to, to do the job and they go home um something that i tried in my team for um where we are to where we are now is making sure that we have um family lunch day on a wednesday so after covid and getting everyone back into the office um i don't work with these people they're part of my wider team and they all look after projects but how can i be there to help help them look after them see what they're doing it's come in and have lunch right i don't need anything from you it's just come and have lunch um it gives us the opportunity to connect and and see how the wider things are going um that to me imparts then how they're feeling what's going on what else is what else we can help them with um and i can impart what I'm doing and other things that are cool or interesting that are happening within the wider the wider um, project teams um, to see if they're interested to they not not be interested in every single thing but what else can we um, bring in to show them um, we've gone axe throwing of all things because some one person in the team decided that axe throwing was going to be a great way for project people to um, bond um, and it was we had fun um, but it can't, you know, not everybody in the team wanted to go. Uh, you know, that's fine. They didn't need to. But you continue to do it. Um, you continue that even if they're not interested in doing those things, that they're still getting the information. They're still seeing what's going on. You can still impart, um, you know, communication and the ability to share what's going on. It doesn't necessarily have to be, well, I have to stand around and hear it or I have to do something um, at lunchtime, I have to be there after hours. Or, you know, I'm not interested in that. It doesn't mean that they don't add to the culture. They're still part of the delivery and they still can impart great ideas. Um, but yeah, they don't always have to contribute in the same way. Yeah, great, great points, Kate. And I think, you know, the I, I really like the, the point you made there about the events. I think, you know, you put on an event, you give everybody the option to go, but you don't, you know, it's not a mandated thing. But you also have to think about events that, you know, people collectively will want to go to, and it's not just the same type of thing constantly. I think you know, there's a there's a lot of discussion in the recruitment community around how do we do events that aren't just drinking based, because uh, as an industry, we have a really really bad reputation as that being the only thing we do. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and not everybody not everybody wants to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we make sure that the things that we're doing are different different times of the day, different ideas. Um, we're trying to build up people's idea of, of getting out of the office when they come in, um, you know, go, staying staying at home all day long in front of your computer is one thing. Then you come to the office and you do the exact same thing. And for us, most of our team members that we talk to are around the world. So putting a, a headset on at home and then putting a headset on in the office, you're, you're kind of cut off and remote. You're not talking. You're not getting that kind of culture boost while you're in the office. So we're looking at, um, we'll either go, we're looking at boxing as another option. You know, we've got a theme here. Obviously, we have a lot of pent-up aggression we need to get rid of. Um, <laughs> but we're also thinking about um, just going on different walks. So these are things that we can just do that just gets us out, clears the minds. We can have that ability to just have a setting where you can talk. And, you know, once your team is, is good in that sense that they find it, it's a, a place of trust. You can have conversations that you might not necessarily have in other ways. So you, there's so much extra that you can get from these kind of things, just organically. 
yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Completely agree. Um, Brad, throw to you for your uh, your thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. I, again, so so many different things that Kate stole from me. Um, no, so the f- first thing I think made, made me realize, um, yeah, so we've actually just launched a social committee. So to, to some of Kate's point, of it, we ended up creating a social committee. And again, exactly one of the key premises was not about drinking and let's just make it all about go out for after, after work drinks. So the first event, I actually went to it a couple of weeks back, uh, we sponsored the Sydney Swans. So we got you know 20 or so tickets to a corporate box and we can go to that. Uh, they've got plans, I think, to tie in with some of our sort of like uh, charity partners that uh, we do work with and have volunteer days. But again, and the, the key point I wanted to touch on from Kate's uh, opening was about the fact that contractors can be excluded from things when they're all part of our team. So we've been very conscious with a lot of the different things that we've set up to not have that distinction. I mean, I was there with probably four people from the BA chapter, and I think at least one or two of them were contractors, some were perms. It, it didn't matter. Their team members come along. We've got this sort of social committee. Um, you know, yeah, come and enjoy yourself. So I think things like that are really important. Um, and as I said, so the, the key thing is I, I actually made me remember a couple of really bad examples from many years ago. It's not like this now, but we're talking about like the concept of excluding or even just identifying contractors as different, right? Um, there was two examples. One of the things, and it, it wasn't even intentional, but one of the things that we did, um, and this is going back probably five or so years ago now, but um, when contractors were set up, the name of the firm that recruited them was in brackets next to their email address and instantly just sort of tagged people and highlighted them as being something different. And one of my favorite examples, and again, I'll talk about this openly because it didn't happen and we shut it down very quickly. Uh, our security teams, for example, um, when they when we were putting in new starter requests, they were saying that, okay, these people are contractors. Now, they couldn't make a distinction between somebody that was coming in to join the business analysis chapter to work with us for a year or two, deliver a massive piece of work, they're part of our team, compared to a plumber that was coming in to fix the bathroom or someone that was coming to service a dishwasher or a photocopier or something. So there was a there was a there was a, a very brief piece where they were like, oh okay, um you know, contractors have a different colored lanyard so they could be identified in the office. No, stop. That's not that's that's the exact opposite of what we want to do. And again, yeah, thankfully that disappeared within about 30 seconds. Um, but things like that I think leaders have to be really conscious of and be looking out for Things like that, there was no malicious intent. There was no conscious decision that said we want to identify these people as different, but just through processes and back office things and security and email setups, it just kind of got lost in the wash. And if if people and leadership roles aren't paying close attention to those things, they can inadvertently cause divisions and cause differences. One of the other ones we've got, and I think, Kate, you talked about this, where people are excluded just because of process. And you sort of said, you know, everyone's got these things. We've made really conscious efforts to eliminate as many of those things as we can. So one of the other examples is we do like a cultural survey. So again, I'm sure everyone does them periodically, um, but they'll go out to employees and not contractors. So you, you miss that opportunity. So one of the things we've done is said, well, hang on, this is a large part of our workforce. It's a big part of when we look at the sort of the, the culmination of what our culture actually is. They can't be ex- excluded. So we've actually gone and done separate um, surveys and done other things to actually capture the completeness of our project delivery teams to make sure that people aren't overlooked, to make sure people aren't missed uh, through those conversations as well. So the feedback is then passed through and we can get there. And I think Kate talked about it as well, but the the all of the different team events, whether I've got you know, BA forums and huddles, we have big town halls we get together. Again, they're open to everybody. You're part of our delivery team. You're a crucial part of our uh, delivery structure. And I'm pretty happy to say that I would argue that most people can't even tell the difference anymore because it doesn't matter. You're part of my team. You'll work with me. I don't care how you've been engaged. You're part of my team. You're the solution architect. You're the BA. You're the tester, whatever. You know, you're just working the team. We get stuff done. So I think, but I think it is necessary for people like us to just be aware of those things and to actively 
ensure that they don't crop up and they don't impact the way that we sort of see each other and the way we work together as teams. I really like your point there, Brad, and thank you for, for the point around the, the getting feedback from contractors on surveys. Um, I was talking to, I was actually talking to a senior contractor last week that said, I'm always very willing to give my feedback and I'll be probably almost more honest than the permanent staff because I am not scared about losing my job here. Like I know I'm here for a fixed period at yeah. best. Like if worst case scenario, they ask me to go and find something tomorrow, I'm kind of used to that. Whereas your permanent staff may sit on the fence a little bit with their feedback because you know, as, as anonymized as you make these things, it's human nature quite often you look at something and you go i know who wrote that or that that sounds like so and so and and people are very aware of that so i think that's always um you know i think it's important to get as much feedback as you can if you are asking for it for genuine reasons which are you know i think those, those types of surveys often are um but mark i'll, I'll bring you around to kind of uh you know give, give your thoughts and close out on this particular one what, what are your thoughts mate yeah, look, um, one of the things that really came up and very clearly from uh, both Kate and Brad is in- inclusiveness, in- inclusion, right? Um, Timothy Clark and his four steps to psychological safety. Inclusion is the first one, right? You, you, if you are building a team that is going to feel safe uh, culturally and, and engaged, uh, in- inclusion uh, is really, really important. Um, it's interesting. I have been at IAG now for five and a half years. I've been in this permanent role for two of those. I started as a contractor and I came off about two decades of contracting. I'd been a perm prior to that. I'm really starting to show my age now. Um, But I've been involved with IAG now as a perm for the last couple of years. And culture was one of the things that really got me to convert to being a perm. which has given me an interesting perspective around the employee value proposition as well as uh, inclusiveness from a contracting perspective. We're very much the same. Uh, You'll struggle to identify PERMs versus contractors. We've also got a, I guess, a third group of uh, resource that is non-workforce. So that's things like consultants or that come under a master services agreement or um, a statement of work. Um, we tend to include contractors and perm a lot of our surveys and we do them on a, a regular basis. Uh, workforce contractors, uh, sorry, non-workforce contractors, uh, consultants don't tend to be involved as much. But going back to this whole matrixed uh, environment as well, some of the uh, results of those surveys can get mixed in with the groups that are uh, those reporting lines that you see in those matrixed uh, environments. So you can sometimes lose a little bit of the clarity, um, but inclusion is huge, right? So very, very important. It is baked in again to what we do. Our hiring, uh, we look very strongly at soft skills and we do a lot of training around those soft skills, both from a compulsory training perspective around culture, but also from a uh, understanding personality, personality types, you know, what sort of uh, strengths do you have? What sort of strengths are in the team? How can you work together with those? And by default, by osmosis, you're starting to absorb those soft skills around you. And I think that's... uh, Soft skills are much harder to teach 
than the technical skills of being a business analyst or um, a project delivery uh, expert. Um, so we look at soft skills as much as, if not more, than the technical ability to do the job um, because they're inherently more coachable, if you like. Um, so uh, absolutely embedding that culture as part of the onboarding process, living and breathing it as we go, inclusive activities that also takes in cultural sensitivities as well. Um, so drinking being one of those. Um, it can be awkward for uh, various team members to be involved in certain activities. So again, just being aware uh, and how we include people is really, really important. Yeah, Mark, I would, I would absolutely agree with all that. And I think, you know, what, what's good to see, if, if, if I look at this for, from a recruitment lens, I think there's been a massive maturity on this particular topic over the last, um, you know, five to 10 years, in as much as, you know, when I started my, my career in recruitment, the, you know, you would go through what good, you know, what the team culture looks like, what you want someone to bring from a personality perspective. You'd go through all of that for a permanent hire. And when it came to hiring a contract, it's like they need these three skills. And if they've got that, that's it. I don't care. You know, nobody thought of the, the potential detrimental effect or the potential negative impact that could have on the team because they were purely there to get the job done. And, um, you know, so they were happy to isolate them. They were happy to have them on their own and, and take these risks as long as they got the job done. I think, you know, now I think we're at a point and you could probably all vouch for this. Like when some when a recruitment consultant is asking you or taking a brief from you about what you're looking for, even for, you know, for contractors as well as permanent staff, they are asking you about, right, what is it you want this person to bring? What is the culture ad you want to have? You know, the the, the questions you probably asked around all of these things are probably much the same for permanent contract now. Whereas you go back five, 10 years, there was a clear distinction between the two. Uh, Mark, you've raised your hand there. Was that uh, deliberate or accidental? Yeah, it was just, no, no, it was absolutely deliberate. I, I think one of the other really important things as we talk about the evolution of recruitment and the evolution of culture in these organisations is respect and inclusiveness from a, a neurodiverse uh, uh, background as well. Um, you know, we have a lot of mental health concerns, challenges, and diversity in that space uh, where I feel much better these days that we actually lean into inclusiveness in that respect, accessibility and the like, really, really important. Um, and uh, I think that is very much a part of what we do when we talk about culture and we talk about inclusion and equity in our organization. So it's good to see um, that we are making those changes. And I, I think it's probably fair to say that it's it's industry-wide. Um, it's getting a lot more recognition. I'd be interested to hear what, what Kate and Brad say on that one. Well, Kate, okay. you, uh, again, again, <laughs> you've, got, you've got your hand For being up. being so polite. <laughs> yeah. um, absolutely echo uh, what Mark was saying. Um, I know for us, and something that MasterCard um, has supported us um, in having, is mental uh, health first aiders and actually taking people, going and getting them trained up to to assist um, and very much like a normal first aider. <laughs> um, yeah, they're there to help. They're not there to, uh, you know, 
perform surgery on you. They, they don't have all of the answers, but they have the ability of having, you know, someone to talk to. And then they have the skill set of being, okay, what, what else, what's next? What, how can we get you the help that you need? And I think that that was an amazing um, opportunity for team members, um, all within the tech hub. So regardless of what floor you worked in, it was open for everyone to, to go off and do this training. And now you know who your first aider is, you know who, um, you know, if, if you have to leave the building quickly because there's a fire, you know who that person is. And you know who your mental first aider is, you know, you can, means that you can w go and talk to somebody who will understand where you're at, but not necessarily be right part of the project or the team or the thing that you're working on. So you can go and have that conversation. I think it's, I think it's very, quite awesome to have that. Brad, was there a, a, anything you wanted to add there? No, 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 just, just echoing the fact that I think yeah, it's, it's come a long way. Uh, in in more recent years, just about how much it's discussed, how openly it's talked about, how comfortable people are getting sharing stuff as well. I'm actually noticing that uh, that yeah, when when people have had issues, despite the fact that there's no obligation to, they feel comfortable enough to actually talk to a, a broader group. It's not just you know some people have like I've spoken to that have actually shared it to a few people they've worked with as well as their leader and the support services that we've got in place. So the fact that that's happening, I think to, to me at least, hopefully shows a bit of a trend that uh, it's becoming far more I guess acceptable and people are more comfortable because of the structure and environments put around us that we are talking about these things more openly uh, yeah we, we're and and I love the fact that we've got you know we've got external partners that we've worked with that because I, I talk, talk to my team all the time like we don't have we're not necessarily even if we've done the first aid course we're still not you know, equipped to deal with some of the things and nor nor do we need to be but we've got services and you know Things are available to people that they can go and utilize straight away uh, if they need help to make sure that we've got the support we need as leaders to help people through anything that they're going through as well. So the fact that all of that is in place, and I suspect everywhere now, I think it's it's just a yeah a, a great to, you know, we talk about psychological safety and all the rest of it, but it's also about feeling comfortable speaking up um, with things like this. So I think all of that adds to um, that sense of sort of respect, I think, back to Mark's point, and uh, yeah, making sure that we're inclusive enough to people we've got here and we know that people have got support if they need it. Yeah, no, great points for, for, from everyone there, I think. Um, and I, I was actually reading a, a Harvard Business Review article earlier this afternoon before before we jumped on here, guys. It was talking about hiring for, um, and it fits in with a lot of what you guys talking about, hiring for cultural ads, not cultural fit. Because when you hire for cultural fit, the risk is you just keep hiring the same person and profile over and over again. Um, and, and kind of that that kind of takes away from everything we're talking about here when we talk about diversity, um, you know, and diversity and all the different approaches and different things it means. Um, you know, how, how do you make sure you you hire to not just create a template over and over again, but to, to be kind of a genuinely diverse team and organisation? Kate? Yeah, just in terms of that, that whole hiring of contractors, um, I don't know if you guys, do you have a, a time limit on how long you can be a contractor before you have to be shown the door or be made permanent. Um, yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that if you're not looking for a good cultural fit when you're first getting them on, um, obviously, you know, the, the amount of effort and the, the IP that you've put, the, the KT that you're putting to people, uh, you would want that, that investment at the end of that two years is one that they still want to work with you and, and continue to, to be on that challenge that they are actually contributing and are adding that value. So, yeah, not, I don't know how, if you guys have had that same issue where you've had to deal with, you know, oh, God, that's such a great person. 
they don't want to turn. They, <laughs> yeah. they they don't want to become firm because they're going to lose money. So, um, I'll answer it from from the perspective that uh, I'm always happy to have the conversation with these resources around the opportunities in the permanent workforce um, to join us either on a fixed term contract um, or as a permanent employee. Um, we, again, tend to try and hire around these soft skills and uh, the ability to flex and work with ambiguity and take on the various roles across the, I guess, the complex and strategic landscape that we work in means that they are adaptable. And when we do uh, invest in the um, the upskilling and uh, building the IP and the relationships, we don't want to let them go. Um, we don't have a discrete policy around um, conversion or departure. Um, but uh, we do look to any opportunity that we see um, to lean into converting someone into the perm. And that's where the employee value prop, I guess, comes in a little bit and where you can have a little bit of a blurred line if you create such a fantastic environment for contractors. You know, where's that value add of turning perm? It's it's a challenging one, right? Yep. So I'll... I'll Piggyback on that, I think one of the areas for me tends to be around that sort of career growth and development. I think you tend to get people that want to branch out of something else into something else, whether it's product ownership, scrum mastery, you know, or, or any other sort of directions or even into leadership. That's the part where I think you start to sort of say, well, I'm going to invest, you know, more time, effort, resources in developing and building capability within the permanent workforce. And they're the ones that are going to be getting that support and given a chance to say, look, this is a stretch for you. This is a new opportunity. Perhaps you haven't done, you haven't proven it before, but we're going to give you a go. Whereas in the contracting space, I feel like that's that's probably one of the key areas where, yeah, we'll, we'll create the best environment we possibly can, but yeah, some, some of the roles we just say, look, that is going to be a permanent role. Like my, my leadership roles, for example, I say they are going to be permanent roles. That's just the, uh, you know, from my perspective, I think they, they should be. Um, and we have we have had some other people trying to make those transitions. And I'm, I think, yeah, that's probably one of the areas, uh, Mark, that we've had. But otherwise, you're right. It's, a, it's, it's definitely been something that comes up. Um, the other point that I wanted to get to is the fact that um, regardless of the duration of how long we think someone's going to be here. I think we, 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 we I don't think we've, for as long as I've been in this role, we've never really looked at anybody and said, okay, they're only going to be here for three months. They're only going to be here for six months. Therefore, I'll only recruit someone that just does this specific thing regardless of culture. Um, I can remember many, many years ago having a leader sort of say to me that, you know, whether they're, you know, contractors require, what was that, like, yeah, you know, less people management or less performance management or less of that type of stuff that, yeah, absolute nonsense. But at the end of the day, these are people in our teams. If there's feedback about them, we need to pass on the feedback. If there's opportunities for growth, we pass on that opportunity for growth. So it's one of those things that I think we dispel that pretty quickly. So, and as soon as I realized that I'm responsible for doing all that type of stuff, I've got to deal with this if there is a bad cultural fit or if they don't sort of, you know, work within the sort of team and don't create a creative environment, it's, 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 you know, it, it incentivizes me to find good people to join the team because I know I've got to deal with the consequences if I get it wrong. So I think because of that, regardless of how long we think people are going to be around, we we do we you know we we make sure we get the best possible sort of um, cultural 
you know, alignment. Um, but to Mark's point as well, and I think I would echo, echo the same thing. I don't think we we have we haven't got a, a hard rule in place, but a very strong desire when we find the right people with the right behaviours, the right cultural you know alignment and everything else. That yeah, we we would go out of our way to try and get them to join us as well. And uh, and I, yeah, I've had some good results in doing so. And I think in in project land, you know, we're here to identify or help the business identify and solve their problems, not create them. Um, so we, we want to put the right people in the right roles, and that includes cultural fit. And that can be a different culture when you are looking at the business or the part of the business that you're providing support to, uh, to what you provide in the capability leadership role, for example. Um, and career pathway, to your point, Brad, is is really important and part of that um, employee value proposition, understanding where you can join the BA community from or and or where you can take the skills that you learn in the BA capability into other uh, disciplines. Kind of see BA land as a bit of a, a hub capability. You can take it in so many different directions. Um and we want to be able to support our employees in in doing that. Yeah, great, great, Mark. Uh, the, well, every, everyone actually. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and it, what I do get the impression from those answers, though, Kate, is that you may be the only person that has an enforced cap on how old contractors can be with you. <laughs> hey, you know, um, not not every not every company is the same. But yes, it's just yeah. I know that I've been in other other companies as well where there's been a time limit put on. Yes. It, Obviously, the, there is always exceptions to the rule, but there's a rule in place, right? So the majority of them are going to be falling into that category. Yeah, definitely true. Definitely something I, I can say I've noticed, um, you know, working with our partners over the last few years is that's become more prevalent within organisations. But um, like you said, always always seems to be an exception to the rule if you find the right person. So <laughs> um, probably a good time, Kate, to bring us on to your question. Um I guess yours is quite a wide question here, really, and you could probably come at it from a number of uh, a number of different ways. But your question to the group is: What tips do you have in being an effective project leader for a new team? Um, so I guess you could look at that from the angle of a completely new team you're standing up. You could look at it as a team maybe you're inheriting, you're taking on an extra team. You could possibly even look at it from you're coming into an organisation in a leadership role for the first time, and the team already exists. Um, but I guess the wider context for this for, from Kate was. How do you understand? What do you do to understand the culture of the company you're working for? Their risk appetite, their communication process, and their policies. How do you understand the the culture and what adaptions you need to make within that team? And then how do you understand maybe some of the cultural differences that exist within that team? So, for example, if you've got a team across multiple locations and different time zones, what the hierarchy and the the kind of respect for the hierarchy would be across different um, you know areas of the world as well, and what you can do to be an effective leader within that. So, um, Brad, I'm conscious that uh, everybody keeps stealing your ideas for answers to these questions, so I'm going to let you go first on this occasion. <laughs> Um, but look, no. So I, I'll probably I'll probably cover off a couple of these things, and I might try and leave some for Mark and the others as well. Um, but just just my notes on having a look at this earlier today. I think the the first one I really want to touch on the the, the tips you've got for being sort of an, an effective uh, project leader for a new team. I think the the key parts for me is about laying the foundations. The reason why I talk a lot about onboarding and I talk about and I think one on ones and all that type of stuff. 
I think you've got to be very deliberate in laying the foundations for honesty and trust. Um, it is something that I'd like to think is, you know, you know it's, it's assumed uh, and you kind of maintain it unless you sort of you know, lose it. But for some people, it's not there out of the box. You've got people with different backgrounds, different experiences. They've had different leaders in the past. And if you're not very explicit in laying those sort of foundations, building up that that uh, safety to speak up, having that sort of the social contract in place to make sure that people know how we want to engage with each other. Uh, and if you don't have somebody very deliberate in leading that, setting that up, and, and then leading by example and sort of living and breathing it thereafter, um, I, I, I feel like, yeah, that, that investment you do up front is critical when setting up any new teams. Now, that's whether or not I'm setting up new teams, new reporting lines, or any sort of, I have opportunities to engage with teams that are about to set themselves up. The work that we do in the early days pays off tenfold. Uh, if you do it, if you don't, if you assume everyone's coming in with the same understanding, the same understanding of culture, the same ways of working, all those types of things that you, know, you can easily take for granted and very quickly realize that you, you've missed a big opportunity. Um, I, I, I think I frustrate people at times. I, I even focus on things like vocabulary. Um, you, the people use language to communicate, but oftentimes what they think a word means is different from what someone else thinks. And if you don't pay attention to those little details, they can blow up massively. It leads to big, um, you know, um, confusions and all this other stuff that could have been addressed had you been really on top of the detail. So, I think I think that's probably the way I'd, I'd tackle that one. Um, the other one I wanted to sort of dive into a little bit, uh, talking. I think that was the the third point was around just understanding the culture and how you need to adapt to make it work for the team. Uh, I think Mark already talked about this. I think you talked about my personality. I would say personality test is probably the wrong word, but yeah, did like creating using tools and techniques for people to learn about themselves and learn about the people they work with i think are really important uh we yeah we, we do these you know, periodically uh and use different ones from time to time and it's less i think it's actually less about the tool and it's more about creating opportunity for dialogue for people to understand their differences yeah the strengths the weaknesses and how they interact as a team uh, so we've done that as a leadership team. I think there's one we use called Working Genius, which was talking about um, yeah different bits and pieces, and yeah a few others I could rattle off. I'm sure we've probably all done the same ones. Um, but but it's yeah I think it's really important to you know visualize them. I think at one session we had we even wore like it was like a pie chart with different color coded sections and a little diagram over the top, and we literally wore it around our chest for you know an hour or two during a day, not to label us as anything, but just to create a visual connection to let people know that people are different, who's similar to me, who's different to me. So anything that you can do like that uh, to just create the dialogue and the discussion around the differences and how the team interacts, I think is is critical. So yeah, I, I, that, that's definitely one of the ones I'd, I'd sort of talk to. Um, and the last one before I open it up for others, I wanted to touch on was the, the, the cultural differences uh, across different time zones and um, especially when you've got cultures with different hierarchical relationships and all that type of stuff so i think it's that, that that's a really tricky one um where people have got a, a a natural tendency to want to sort of respect the hierarchy and to maybe not want to speak up not want to raise things where we're sitting here going give us all the feedback we'll change anything just tell us what's wrong and we can't get anybody to actually give us that feedback so the only thing and i don't think this is a solid answer for it but the only thing that i've really been encouraging and trying to focus on in that space is trying to eliminate 
as much of the hierarchy as possible. So recently we've been sort of, you know, shifting more into far smaller teams and trying to get these more persistent teams. And one of the things we used to have with certainly some of the offshore partners we worked with was, you know, we would, might we might have a couple of devs or a couple of testers, but they'd then report into a project manager and maybe there was someone that works onshore that you know, was their sort of go-to person. And all of a sudden you just created a hop for information. And that was almost like a cultural divide that you couldn't even infiltrate the uh, the rest of the team so what we've you know been trying to do at least is to eliminate as much of that as possible and just have the people that are doing the work talk to the other people that are doing the work really simple concept but over time once they start to feel that comfort and yes it might take a little bit longer to get that level of comfort and openness but we are starting to find that where those teams work more together they start to build up the trust they start to talk a little bit more openly and you start to actually get a little bit more uh, traction and openness of uh, information as well so there are a couple. I don't want to steal, steal all of them, but I thought they were ones that really resonated with me and I thought I'd sort of uh, put a bit of context to. Thank you, Brad. Uh, Mark, do you, want to, do you want to jump in and give us your thoughts there? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think uh, one of the first things around uh, time zone, for example, uh, we've got people that work in New Zealand um, and across Australia. We've also got uh, people that work um, in the subcontinent and throughout parts of Asia as well. I think what we can do, it's, a, it's really simple in concept, it can be hard to line people up, is just try and look at having meetings at a time that is as suitable as possible for everyone in the time zone, which is really hard when you've got maybe six hours or so to try and span, but even trying to be aware and mixing that up sometimes just to make it appear that no one's on the outer, can be really uh, valuable. Um, I think, again, uh, a number of the points raised in, in the questions are around how we embed the culture from everything from even interviewing uh, likely candidates through onboarding and then our rhythms and routines as we move through their day-to-day. So when you're setting up a, a team, for me, it's about trying to understand the routines and rhythms, who's involved. That's where those, uh, even just from a perception or an awareness perspective, if people are aware of different personalities, different challenges, they can put themselves into the position of someone that is uh, in their stakeholder group, for example. Uh, just to understand why someone is really gung-ho, really, really uh, driven, or someone is sitting at the back of the room with their arms folded, totally disengaged. Often the person sitting at the back of the room with their arms totally uh, crossed and totally disengaged is probably the loudest voice in the room, right? You, You really want to engage with those people to understand why And it could be a cultural thing. Um, I'm not comfortable speaking up in this environment because everyone has more experience or is more senior than I am. Uh, As a facilitator, as as a leader, it's up to us to build that safety, uh, that that comfort and that inclusion. And it could be, um, you know, Brad, you look concerned. You know, have you got something to add to the conversation? Is there something that you're seeing that maybe we're missing? Turn it around into something that is uh, valuable without, you know, putting someone on the spot per se, right? So not demanding an answer from someone or making someone feel uncomfortable. Give them the opportunity, though. Um, 
and often recognizing that involvement. So thanks, you know, I really appreciate you getting involved. I, I know it can be hard in these environments, you know, just acknowledging, making them feel like they're getting that warm hug, if you like, um, from the um, from those in the room. You know, it's just about inclusion. Yeah. Um, so... Look, I, I think it's just an awareness thing. I remember early in my career doing one of those personality type uh, quizzes. And right right at the very beginning, we were asked to place where we thought we were on the various spectrum that we were uh, dealing with. And then we sat and uh, sat the, the quiz. And I was almost polar opposite to what I thought I was. You know, and again, it comes down to the vernacular. It comes down to what you think introvert and extrovert actually means. Um, and there was one person in the room that was absolutely gutted because he scored so low on the empathy scale. Um, I won't mention any names. But again, it was a perception thing. Um, and breaking down those barriers, yes, we had a bit of fun with it and, um, you know, that was great. But, it, you know, by osmosis, we're learning about the different personality types and where we see people and how we might be able to read the room better. And by doing that, you know, we're able to lean into some of those more challenging cultural situations. Um, I think that's that's really important. But but just making the room feel safe. Um, and and getting the voice at the table to try and set up those routines and rhythms. We don't often get that, particularly in the BA space. You know, project tends to get set up. Um, the problem's already solved. We're coming in to write the requirements and, and do the process work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if we can get the voice at the, the table earlier, set the scene a little bit more and understand how the project is going to deliver, we can put the right value adds as opposed to capabilities or deliverables. Again, vernacular, right? Um, if we're looking at the value adds that we're bringing to the table, you know, we can look at this from a, uh, a perspective of skill set, type of person, cultural fit, um, cultural stretch um, or capability stretch. And you can also put people into roles where they want to develop if we've got the capacity to do that. Right. So there's all of these elements that if you get the voice at the table early enough, you can lean into and it becomes mutually beneficial, not just for the project, but also the people you've got on the project. They're engaged. They're developing in areas that they want to develop. Um, you might be giving them a change from the type of work that they've been doing for ages. Right. And they need a bit of a reboot. And that's great. Um, you don't want to be seen as pigeonholing people and people don't want to be pigeonholed necessarily. Although you've got people that just say, just give me data work or just give me reporting work. Or, and that's fine too. Um, but understanding all of that is how I look at building as strong a team as we can in the delivery space. Get the strengths out of the passion and the, uh, the capability of people. Yeah, great tips. And obviously some common themes coming through there as well. Um, hey, knowing where your team is located across the globe, I know that you'll have particularly enjoyed Mark's comment about how you schedule meetings for a time that works for everyone. Uh, you don't have to share the location of all your team members, but they're very well spread. <laughs> what, what are your tips around, around this? Obviously, as a question you posed. 
uh, well, just the, the rebuttal on finding the, the best time. It's never an Australian time zone. Let's just be very yeah. clear. <laughs> it is never. Um, you're either up way early or you're up too late. Um, yeah, I, these, these things are, are, you know, hit me on a day base, daily basis of trying to um, deal with different cultures, dealing with different time zones, being respectful of people that either they've been up all day and it's, you know, hour 14 and I'm wearing a go and really want to talk about stuff. And they're like, yeah, well, you just shut up. We, we don't care that your action is open. We don't care that you want this updated. Yes, it's an, it's a risk and it will continue to be a risk, Kate. We don't care. Um, so being sensitive to, you know, reading the room and, and what kind of, how you get the message across um, is always fun when you're dealing with the time zone. Um, not on this particular role um, at the moment, um, a previous one. I had seven time zones where we had to catch up and there were very different, uh, very different um, styles in being able to just be nice and protect the innocent. Um, it made it a very uh, hard uh, and challenging leadership role. Um, most of the people I'd never met and still haven't, um, even after all these years, um, but trying to get them to, you know, come together as one team and rise above cultural differences and the time zones and the the language challenges, those types of things of just being able to, to deliver um, and make sure that they understood what mattered most, um, how you had the times to be able to build trust um, so that they would communicate, um, you know, th that that spend many years doing that so for me it's like yeah bring it on those kind of things don't uh, scare me anymore but I know that when if you're jumping into a brand new team you're bringing the baggage of how you've been treated with <laughs> and everything else um, and thinking about the demographic hopefully that are going to listen to this podcast if you get you know airlifted into a particular team and you're told right go and do stuff um you have to be able to read the room. You need to be able to understand the culture you're working into. You need to be able to understand yourself. And I really love that Brad and Mark um, have done the, the same kind of things of understanding themselves, being able to work out how that fits with your team. Um, I always, I, you know, my tool of choice is Gallup Strengths. Uh, I love being able to rattle off the top five. It helps when I'm doing performance uh, planning at the end of the year. Because they always ask, what's your strengths? Well, I can tell you what my strengths are with conviction. And here's how I do that on a daily basis. And empowering my team to be able to feel comfortable to talk about their strengths in that way, I love. Um, but it also gives people a chance to understand we're all doing the same kind of job, but we're going to do it in a different way. So what can I fake till I make it? If I ask you, how would you approach a certain situation because of the strengths that you bring to the table, how can that complement how I look at something? How could I change or slightly tweak how I would approach a situation to maybe get a better result? So giving your team that toolkit, I think is is fantastic. And I love being able to do that for um, the team members that I work with. Um, same idea as Brad, not so much the shirt. I didn't have the budget, um, but I did have the ability to put everybody's superpowers um, in an avatar, so I made them all look like uh, superheroes, and their top five strengths were all around them. And we sh we put them actually in 
um, the place where everyone had lunch. And other team members go, oh, wow, that's hilarious because we all look like Superman or, you know, <laughs> Supergirl. <laughs> and thing is funny at the time. But then it started the conversation about, oh, wow, what is what is woo? How is, how is woo a top five strength? What, what does that mean? Well, it means winning others over. That's a fantastic strength to have as a BA. Let me tell you about it. And it opened the conversation for other people to know how they worked. I was able then to use that work when the next project came up and it wasn't just about, oh, okay, I really love data. I want to work on that or cloud's the new best thing. I want to work on the cloud. It was this particular group of people in this challenging situation, that kind of skill set's going to rock. That's how we can help this person in flow, make sure that they are doing what they need to be able to do. Um, and they're going to have a much better chance of delivering and delivering well and enjoying it and want to continue to grow um, rather than giving them something they hate. Brad, did you want to talk about that one? Just your comment around the budget. Uh, it was a piece of cardboard stuck to a piece of string. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't as fancy as I made it sound, let's be clear. <laughs> uh, so it's good as my budget. Okay, awesome. That's, right. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, um, the the... Just to touch on what Mark was saying about putting someone on the spot, um, this whole idea of if you can read the room and you're hearing that people aren't talking, um, you know, you do get people that are on the um, the different spectrum um, of just how their brain works, how they want to interact. Um, it, this is near and dear to my heart. My daughter's on the spectrum, so I'm always looking out for those kind of things. I just It's inherent. Go back and check in or give them the opportunity to read something before the meeting or say, bring your thoughts or email me, give them a different avenue of being able to speak up. It doesn't necessarily have to be in front of other people. Um, and I think that's an important thing that we we don't spend enough time on doing. Um, but yeah, I try to, try to put that in the back of my mind to, to see how else we can get. If you're not hearing people talk, um, and it's really, it adds that layer of complexity for me sitting in Sydney and I'm listening. My boss um, for the last five years has been in the UK. His boss has been in America. So to try and get that loop around of how people are feeling, you're never in the same time zone. You're, you're either awake, asleep or angry, uh, hangry because you missed dinner. You know, you, you, all of those things are on the thing. But how do you get back to, all right, well, we didn't hear enough from this person. We really thought they would. How do we then interact with them? And make sure that they feel comfortable talking about it. How do we get them involved in the next conversation? Yeah, you've got something you'd like to add on on that one, Mark? Yeah, I I, I loved what Kate and and Brad just brought up. Um, I, I think what's what's really important, um, particularly around uh, the different personality types, um, and in particular what Kate was referencing with um, you know her daughter being on the on the spectrum. Um, we often hear, let's get everyone in a room, get, feed off each other's energy, etc. That can be the most detrimental approach for a number of people as well. Being aware of that gives you the opportunity to involve people in a way that is suitable for them. And that's not because they don't want to be involved. They find those environments with all the masking and all the challenges around um, all the stimuli. You know, we're all talking about colors and post-it notes and noise and energy. 
that's exhausting for a number of people, right? So it's just being aware of how we build that into getting the best out of people that I think is also really, really important. Um, anyone from my team that will listen to this, and I haven't thrown in any analogies yet, they will be bitterly disappointed. Um, I think, you know, as leaders, you know, I like to see us as servant leaders. We're there for our team. Um, I like to ensure that, and this is what I like in a leader as well, where they they buffer a lot of the noise. They let me get on with my job. They let me do what I'm there to do. Um but they keep me informed, but they also give me a good avenue to raise things and I feel safe to do so. Um, you know, the other analogy that I'll use is you play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. Um, but just being a leader that is there for your team, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room, you know, because I'm not doing the work. I'm there to lead the team. You know, obviously I'll get on the tools and do what I need to do, but my skill set as a capability lead isn't necessarily in the capability as much as it is in making sure the team is able to deliver on that capability as best they can. And that's that's a big difference. I've worked with people that um, can be afraid of that. They, As a leader, they want to know everything. They want to be at the pointy end. They want to be um, sure and in control, um, and that's all well and good, but in complex, challenging corporate environments, you know, that can be really, really hard, and and I, I argue impossible. You know, you want to build a team that can do all of the stuff that you need them to do, and your job is to lead them and make their job as easy and as frictionless as possible. Yeah, no, it's a really good point, Mike. I, I think in the early parts, I mean, I've been in this gig for about seven-odd years now, and in the early parts, because I, I transitioned from like a, you know, a senior BA type role into the position of leadership, and I think anyone making that transition, uh, I think that's the trap you fall into. You kind of you're used to being the person with all the information and all the answers, and you know I'm the go-to person, and you almost have to let go of that stuff, um, especially if you want to try and get the best out of people that you work with, because the last thing anybody wants in a leader is the person telling you this is what to do, this is how I've always done it, you must do it my way. Uh, I always sort of say I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm in this spot not because I was the best BA. It's you know I'd like to think that I, I do a good job of this leadership thing. But one of the best things I do is listen. Uh, and I think actually there was a, a pr- phrase I picked up even in researching for some of this stuff. It was uh, the concept of leadership that listens. I think it was a, an article I was reading about what people look for. And I love that concept of leadership that listens, right? And I think you, you really want to be listening a lot more than you're talking at people um, because I think one of the best things I've been able to do is hear, hear and elevate good ideas be very careful you don't take credit for them yourself. That was a tip my mother gave me after being a, a, a female in the insurance industry for 30 odd years in her career. And I think she always sort of drilled it into me because she had too many people that were sort of taking her ideas and taking credit for them. So she made, she was insistent on me that I made sure I never did that. Um, but I, so I think, I think listen to people that you're with, elevate their good ideas and try and give them credit as much as you can as well through the process. And uh, yeah, not, don't think that the leader's job is to be the face of all of these good ideas and lift up your team and lift them up around you. And I think you'll get much better results. Yeah, Daniel, Dan think- Goldman's um, Emotionally Intelligent Leader, um, that book, it talks about the six um, or his defined six uh, styles of leadership. Um, you know, there's no one path. Uh, there's no one type of leadership that is going to fit every situation. Often it's a combination of leadership styles. But again, it's being that 
uh, aware um, and being able to adapt. Sometimes you need to be a leader that isn't sitting in your wheelhouse, isn't isn't in your your happy place. Um, sometimes you need to be coercive. Sometimes you need to be a pace-setting leader. Sometimes you need to be authoritative. Um, you know, other times you can be much more democratic. I'm just rattling some of these names off, but um, you know, there is no one size fits all. Um, and again, culture allows us to support those different types of leadership styles because your team is on board with you and because they know that they, you're there for them. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kate. <laughs> uh, just on that too, I, this whole idea of leadership, I, I get that people have the title and, you know, they are expected to look after people. I think that definitely on, pro, you know, leadership needs to come from everyone. So we're big on making sure everyone's a leader. Everyone has the voice. Everyone has the ability to challenge. Everyone, you know, we're not going, you know, this is, you know, to re-echo what Brad was saying about removing the hierarchy, getting rid of that, right? It's it's how you hold yourself, how what things that you tolerate when you're seeing. If your team sees that you're not saying anything about it or you're not doing anything about it, they go, all right, well, then that's just how it is. And they're not going to then say anything about it or it, worse, it erodes the, the culture of the team and then they leave if they're not enjoying what's going on, right? So being that leader that, you know, not that everyone needs to be the same as you, but they can see the qualities, right? You, When you think about your own career, you think about those, what are the great leaders and what do you aspire to be as a leader yourself? You're taking inspiration from the people around you. I hope that I, you know, I... I can impart some wisdom on the people that I work with. And there's a little bit of, you know, Kate-isms that come out <laughs> when I talk to people. Um, I'm still really good friends with people that I used to work with. That's a, one a good thing I think that but there's good culture and that, you know, they still want to talk to me after they don't need to when they're not paid to, right? Um, you know, when they, you know, come to you for our advice and talk about how they've been doing um, in their career and what other things they can do. To me, that inspires me that I'm doing a, you know, I think I'm doing a good job as a leader, that people want to emulate some of the things that I do, right? I'll continue to evolve my leadership journey um, and be inspired by other leaders. I want to be inspired by them as well, that they feel confident to speak up, that uh, you know we've done a good enough job that you can actually see that, that that's happening. That to me keeps me going in in, you know, when projects are going crap or you're getting dumped on as the leader because there's always, you're the neck to choke, um, you know, something's not right. But you can see that, you know, you've still got a great team. They they rally around you, they, you know, get the job done, looking after you. Um, I know that I'm very transparent with my team and I'm transparent with my leaders. I, I upfront tell them that's how I, I work. I'm I'm. Honesty is a big thing for me, um, so I'm going to tell you like it is. You might not like it all the time, but I, I want you to feel comfortable that if you come to me, I'm going to tell you what's going on. Um, that's how I operate. My team knows that. So they'll know if something's not right and they will rally to check to see what's going on um, and how they can support and do stuff. I think that's an amazing thing about culture of my teams when we're delivering Yes, you know, you're going to have a bad day, but you have people around you that will look after you. 
because um, they know if you're if you're quiet, if Kate's quiet, something's wrong. Right, go in there and find out what's happening. Um, and even though I'm their manager, they're, they're still going to check on me as a human being, <laughs> which I think is lovely. Um, not having to worry about that hierarchy. Um, our leaders are, are humans as well. You can see if they're having a bad day, go in and check in and make sure that they're okay. That's the culture that you want to have, that you're not just borrowing, um, uh, going up to somebody and just, oh, I need something from you, or you haven't done a deliverable, or you haven't done this. Just having those conversations where you can have that space to just have a normal conversation with people and check in on how they're doing as well is, is a big part of the culture for me. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a really good point. And, uh, you know, back to my earlier point about the seven habits, they refer to it as an emotional bank account. And, you know, you're asking if you're going to go and ask somebody for something, like, what have you been doing to make that person want to do that for you? Like, are you, are you only ever asking for things or are you giving back to that person as well? Um, and there was something that you guys said a minute ago. You said also, you know, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. And there's a well-known quote. I mean, it's been attributed to half the population at this point. But you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. And um, you know, I think that that one really kind of sticks as a leader. And I think the, there's another quote, and I, I I like these sound bites. I mean, they work really well. Some of them have a bit of depth. But I think Steve Jobs once said. He said, here at Apple, we don't hire smart people so we can tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. And, you know, and I guess, you know, one part of being a leader is to have an ego that will accept that all those things are true. <laughs> um, but not to go so far the other way that, you know, I think Atlassian have this kind of well-publicized, um, you know, mantra around no brilliant assholes. That, that, you know, from, from a hiring perspective, it doesn't matter how good you are as an engineer. If what you're going to do is come in and ruffle the feathers of a team that they've spent years and years building to develop market leading products in a place that loads of people want to work, uh, you, you're not going to work here. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a great point and I appreciate the, uh, the, the insight and the opinions of all of you there. Um, I guess we'll we'll, uh, we'll wrap it there for today. I'm sure we could probably speak again for another hour, hour and a half. I can see everybody's got kind of increasingly engaged on the topic as we've gone, which I appreciate massively, guys. And I'm sure that uh, our listeners will, will definitely take uh, take multiple things away from this. But yeah, before before we end today, just want to say thank you again to, to all of you for, for sharing your thoughts on today's conversation. So once again, today we have Kate Morris from MasterCard. We have Brad Kirby from QBE and we've had Mark Sherman from I. IAG. So if you are in a position where you are undergoing a major program work and hiring for new project roles and you want to hire that right culture fit, whether you're looking for a new role or if you're just interested in getting involved in a similar discussion to what we've had today, please feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution to see how we can help. My name again is Lewis Burks. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as a link in my profile to our full series of podcasts. Thank you again to all the guests today. Thank you for listening and we hope you can join us again next time on the Evolution Exchange Australia podcast. Thank you. Thank you.